Welcome to Kindred Media, a nonprofit initiative of Kindred World. Kindred has gathered thought leaders, researchers, and activists exploring the new story of the human family for over 15 years. Visit our website for our new story features, interviews, podcasts, and video collections at www.kindredmedia.org. Welcome to Kindred. This is Lisa Reagan, and today we will be hearing from Rian Eisler on creating a post-pandemic caring economy and culture. Rian is a social system scientist, cultural historian, and attorney whose research, writing, and speaking has transformed the lives of people worldwide. Her newest work, Nurturing Our Humanity, How Domination and Partnership Shape Our Brains, Lives, and Future, shows how to construct a more equitable, sustainable, and less violent world based on partnership rather than domination. Rian is internationally known for her bestseller and seminal work, The Chalice and the Blade, Our History, Our Future, which Ashley Montague called the most important book since Darwin's Origin of Species. Currently, Rian is president of the Center for Partnership Studies, which is dedicated to research and education. So welcome, Rian. It's a pleasure to be with you, Lisa. Well, we have a little roadmap here that we're going to try to follow in the next 45 minutes to help Kindred followers understand your work and its incredible importance, especially right now as we're looking at, um, as people are calling it, the uh, you know, post-pandemic economy, what is going to happen. So I think, you know, I think I'd just like to start there and where is it you see opportunities, uh, how we could shift the economy that has not been a caring or a collaborative economy in that direction? I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has really exposed some structural faults in current economic systems. Uh, how really they are not resilient. Uh, and what my work has done uh, is to look at the underlying problems because people tend to look at economics as if it just existed someplace in isolation from our value system, from our larger society. And of course, one of the things that we've seen is that the quote, essential workers are those that care uh, for child care, for health care, uh, for keeping a clean environment, for providing us with food and other necessities. But we've also seen, and this is one of the real flaws in current economic systems, that this work is not adequately rewarded uh, by our current uh, systems, and it has to be. And it really has to be as we shift from a, an industrial to a post-industrial society, this is not only a human and environmental issue, but it is also an issue of economic effectiveness, because economists never tire of telling us that the most important capital for our new knowledge service era is what they like to call high quality human capital. And of course, 
we know from neuroscience that whether or not that capital is produced largely depends, um, depends on care, on the quality of care, especially the quality of care that children receive early on. So this pandemic, uh, when the old normal seems to be crumbling all around us, is really our opportunity to build a new, more sustainable, more humane, uh, more environmentally uh, adequate uh, way of thinking of what is normal. And economics is a huge part of that. So there's hardly a day that anyone can turn on a news show and right away they're giving you, what is the Dow doing? And you know, everyone is really interested in that number for some reason. But uh, as you've pointed out in your book, The Real Wealth of Nations, um, you know, this is uh, a part of the problem. <laughs> can you kind of tell us about our, our right now, our GDP and why does that not work to really measure what's valuable in our country? Well, all we have to really do is to look at the incredible disconnect between a skyrocketing, as we speak, uh, U.S. stock market and what's actually happening um, to people. Unemployment is soaring. Homelessness is soaring. Evictions are soaring. Hunger is soaring. Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, to, to really measure the, um, the, the health of an economy by how the financial markets are doing, which is what a lot of GDP does, is crazy. But GDP is actually a crazy system because if you really look at it, GDP actually includes as positives activities that harm and take life. Uh, I like to give the example of selling cigarettes. Not only is that part of GDP, but so are the resulting health costs, funeral costs. They all make GDP go up. Uh, the same thing is true of fast foods, of high fructose foods. I mean, of, of oil spills, you know, the cleanup costs, the lawsuits, they're great for GDP. I mean, it's, but not only does GDP uh, put in negatives as positives, and this is really critical, it fails to include as quote, productive work, uh, the incredible economic value of the work of the, what I call the three life-sustaining sectors, the household, the volunteer community economy and the natural economy. And that, that economists are still teaching in economic schools that parents who work from dawn to dusk uh, in households are quote, economically inactive because their work is not included in GDP is lunatic and we have to change it. And that's why the Center for Partnership Studies developed what we call social wealth economic indicators, which we're now working to update and condense into a one, because there's 24 of, 
of the social wealth economic indicators into one or two numbers uh, so that really policymakers have a realistic guide for how they allocate investments, and that is changing policies. So can you tell us a little bit uh, about capitalism and socialism? It, 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 it is presented in this country that you're one or the other. I know when I posted on Kindred recently, my interview with Suzanne Zedike in Scotland, and they have a lot of social safety nets in place like paid family leave and healthcare um, and maternal care that allow for them to put programs into place that support children um, at risk, especially, and they were able to lower violence, uh, especially in big cities like Glasgow by 50%. So wow. their programs and approach are effective, um, but it seems like in America, when I post things like that, I'll have people show up on Facebook going, you're a communist, <laughs> you're a socialist. They're like, oh gosh. <laughs> so can you help us? Uh... Well, we have been told an erroneous story. Uh, if we look at these policies that they call communist or socialist, they're really caring policies, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, we, you know, paid parental leave, paid sick leave, uh, elder care with dignity, uh, free and, you know, accessible, uh, high quality early childhood education. These are policies informed by caring for people. And of course, environmental protection uh, is informed by caring for nature. And what they fail to recognize is that neither socialist nor capitalist theory actually uh, support caring policies. Uh, it, it is really a complete misunderstanding of, well, look, capitalism and socialism came out of the 1700s and 1800s. Uh, early industrial times, right? So on that count alone, they would be outmoded in our 21st century post-industrial knowledge service economy. But the problem goes much deeper because both Smith, you know, the father, so to speak, of capitalism and Marx, the quote, father of so-called scientific socialism, which later morphed into communism in the former Soviet Union and China, uh, they came out of times when the work of caring for nature wasn't on their horizon. I mean, for them, uh, exploiting nature with unlimited growth was the model. As for the work of caring for people in households, you know, child care, caring for the sick, for the elderly, in their time, this, quote, women's work, right, was supposed to be performed for free by a woman in a male-controlled household, so much so that even when in the 1800s, when Marx wrote, in most places, even in the West, uh, a woman could not legally sue for injuries inflicted on her 
only her husband could for loss of her services. Now, that gendered system of values uh, was perpetuated by both capitalism and socialism, which classified the work of caring for people and caring for nature as just reproductive rather than productive, which is why we have such an incredibly insane way of measuring economic health. It comes out of both these theories. So it's really nonsense to call these socialist or capitalist policies. And the fact of the matter is that the nations that actually pioneered uh, caring policies, and we can talk a little bit about them, uh, are not socialist. They often call themselves what they are, caring societies. And who are those? Well, we're talking primarily of Northern European nations like Finland, like Norway, like Sweden, uh, which really uh, at the beginning of the 20th century were so poor that there were famines, you know, whole American states, Minnesota were populated by people fleeing dire poverty. Today, these nations are regularly not only in the highest ranks of the World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Reports, but they're also in the highest ranks of the World Happiness Reports. And one of the major reasons is that they pioneered caring policies. But this, this did not happen in a vacuum, and this is really why we have to heed what Einstein said, which is that we can't solve problems with the same old thinking that created them, namely capitalism versus communism or socialism versus capitalism, that we really have to have a different way of looking at the world. And for, as you know, uh, for about 30 years now, one book after another that I've written has uh, reported findings of a very different underlying social classification that transcends old categories like right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist, what I call a domination system and a partnership system. And these nations have moved more to the partnership side. And a, in order to understand these uh, classifications, we really have to do something that old categories don't, to no longer ignore or marginalize the majority of humanity, women and children. Because as these so-called soft feminine policies, caring policies, uh, really depend to a large extent on a rising status of women. So it's not only that in these nations, the national legislatures are 40 to 50% female, it's that as the status of women rises, men no longer feel it such a threat to their status, to their so-called masculinity, to also embrace more 
caring policies. In other words, the movement towards more fluid gender stereotypes and the movement towards empowering women is not a movement of women against men or men against women. It's a movement to really free both women and men uh, from the straitjackets of all gender stereotypes. And yes, to elevate uh, policies that are in the old mindset that both Marx and Smith shared are no longer considered soft or feminine, mm. caring policies. Well, a few years ago, we stopped using the word patriarchy at Kindred because uh, it was easy to see that that pitched um, some of the issues that we talked about in the man versus woman camp. And those of us who were mothers of men <laughs> said, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about myself. And I uh, have plugged in your terms, um, you know, cultural transformation theory and the domination uh, models into Kindred's new story lexicon. So when people are in our stories and features and we refer to, we use the new language, which we'll get to, um, this is one of the four cornerstones of your work, um, to tell, we use new narratives and new language to tell a new story, that, that word will pop up. So uh, we felt it very important to say dominator or domination model instead of patriarchy so we wouldn't end up kind of in a hamster in a wheel going around and around with old terminology. Um, so thank you for that. But I did want to just uh, say, uh, I've heard you throw out some statistics about how this lands in America for women. And you have said, you know, of course, uh, we, a lot of us know about the statistics of children living in poverty um, and going to bed hungry at night. It's at least a quarter of the children, one in four in the United States. But you've also said, you know, this, this model doesn't work out for women because um, the number of women over 65 living in poverty is twice that of men over 65. Um, so there are some very hard statistics out there to show how does the dominator model uh, work out for children and women. Um, do you have anything else to add to that? Well, I, I think you've put it very well, Lisa. I want to say, that, you know, linguistic psychologists have long told us something that we really need to heed, which is that the categories, and this is especially true of social and economic and political categories, provided by a culture channel our thinking. So that it's very difficult, indeed for some people almost impossible, to see any alternatives. And this is why the new language of the domination partnership social scale is so very important. Um, because if you really think about it, there have been uh, repressive, uh, violent systems in every one of our conventional categories, right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist socialist, right? You know, the two mass applications of socialism in the former Soviet Union and China uh, were really pretty disastrous when you come to think about it. Uh, so what we need is not only a new way of looking at what we're trying to leave behind, but also 
of what is the alternative. And that is what my work has been about. Um, I think it's really very difficult still to uh, get people to understand that if you look at the modern progressive social movements over the last 300 years, uh, they've all challenged the same thing, a tradition of domination. And if we once begin to use this frame of the partnership domination scale, we begin to understand what is happening. I mean, think about it for a moment. The Enlightenment, so-called rights of man movement, challenged the supposedly divinely ordained right of kings to rule their, quote, subjects. The feminist movement challenged the, again, <coughs> so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule women and children in the, quote, castles of their homes all over their, quote, subjects. The feminist movement and then the women's rights movement challenged the so-called divinely ordained right of men to rule over the women and children in the, quote, castles, you know, a military metaphor of their homes. The abolitionists, the civil rights, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement today, uh, challenges again a once considered divinely ordained tradition of the right so-called of a quote superior race to rule over quote inferior ones. If you look at the movements for economic and social justice, they're challenging top-down economic and social control, a tradition of nomination. If you look at the peace movement and then at the more recent very important movement to end traditions of intimate violence, you know, the pandemic of violence against women and children worldwide, it challenges another characteristic of domination systems, the use or threat of force to maintain rigid rankings of domination, all the way to the environmental movement uh, challenging our once hallowed conquest of nature, right? Domination of nature that at our level of technological development could really do us in. But if you look at these movements, it's something very interesting and very important uh, comes to the fore. Most of them have focused on trying to dismantle the top of the domination pyramid, right? politics and economics as conventionally defined, with far, far less attention to the foundation of relations that we know today from neuroscience uh, really are essential to shift from domination to partnership. And it is on these uh, gender and parent-child relations uh, so that, that really the domination pyramid rests and continues to rebuild itself in regression after regression. So it's not coincidental that for both Hitler and Stalin, you know, secular Western regimes, for uh, Eastern regimes like Khomeini's Iran or the Taliban religious Eastern regimes, uh, it, it doesn't really matter. For all of them, a, either maintaining or pushing us back 
to a so-called traditional family, which is code for an authoritarian, rigidly male-dominated, highly punitive family. For them, that's a top priority. Whereas for many so-called educated people who consider themselves progressives, these are, quote, just women's issues and children's issues. And we've got to change this to really help people understand that, yes, of course, <coughs> uh, you know, the situation of women and children worldwide, which, by the way, women and children are the mass of the world's poor and the poorest of the poor. I mean, that's unconscionable, but it is bad for the whole society. And we've got to help people connect the dots. And we can't do that using the old ways of thinking. Uh, I so appreciate the context uh, that you bring to these discussions. Um, uh, the 22 years I spent as an activist for families, I see uh, uh, the conscious parenting movement right there in the movement you're speaking of. And uh, the conscious parenting movement has been advocating for children to you know, have access to the wellness model, which doesn't really exist in the United States. And it took us a long time to figure out that's what was happening, which is uh, before we started recording, I was saying I'm so grateful to have the meta view that you bring uh, to these issues because I know a lot of activists will uh, feel like they can stop banging their head against the you know, institutional walls, uh, the dominator wall and say, okay, that's what this is now and, and back away and have a better perspective um, on what is it and where can we start and where can we, where can we, um, where, how can we get traction? And I'd like to spend just a minute on, you know, your book, um, Nurturing Our Humanity goes into the neuroscience of change and what prevents us from changing. And you have some pretty dramatic, um, you know, you, you point to some of the tribal rituals of how uh, the oppressed are brought into these rituals of oppression and how uh, th this is still happening today. And this is, these are neural net pathways you're pointing out to the dominator trance that we're in. And I, I love it that I've heard you say that this consciousness revolution that we uh, think we're participating in, which by the way, our original name for our nonprofit was Families for Conscious Living. So we thought, we, you know, it's really the consciousness revolution is waking up from this dominator trance. So can you speak for a moment to some of these barriers in our own neurobiology to waking up? Well, I, Nurturing Our Humanity, which came out uh, in 2019 with Oxford University Press, uh, really uh, shows by using example after example from neuroscience that the, the domination partnership social scale is essential in order to bring about a lasting foundational change. And uh, that book, um, I've been working on it for 10 years actually. And then three years before it was published, I invited a co-author uh, who brought a very important piece to it, a piece that I had already touched upon in The Chalice and the Blade, um, 
but he took it much deeper. That's anthropologist Douglas Fry, and he is one of the world's authorities on foraging, gathering, hunting societies, which is how we humans lived for millennia, for millennia. And he calls them the original partnership societies. And I think it's really important for us to know that that was really the original direction of human cultural evolution. Um, and then there was a period of enormous dislocation and we shifted to a domination direction. And the current progressive movements, as I've said, are really all attempts to reverse that shift, to move again in a partnership direction, not back to any, quote, good old days, but forward using the best that we have today. And we can do this, but we really have to understand what it's all about. And, uh, you know, neuroscience, uh, without uh, going into a lot of detail, I can only say that study after study shows that what psychology has long told us, that our early experiences are formative, actually is now verified by neuroscience itself. Uh, which shows that this whole nurture versus nature and nature versus nurture uh, debate, just like the capitalism versus socialism, socialism versus capitalism debate, is beside the point. What we're really talking about is how our genes are expressed, gene expression. And that depends on the kinds of experiences and observations that children have early on, which impact nothing less, nothing less than how our brains are constructed. So the good news is that we can actually change throughout life. Our brains can change, but it takes, as we know, a lot of work a lot of effort. And for some people, uh, it is almost impossible to change. They've been so damaged by domination, socialization. And the ACES studies, which uh, are now gaining prominence, show that even here in the United States, where we don't have genital mutilation, where children are not sold into sexual slavery, you know, as they are in other regions of the world where there is a more rigid domination system. Even here, the uh, enormous damage caused by what they call adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, mm -hmm. a physical, emotional, social is huge. And I've often spoken about domination systems as trauma factories, starting in early childhood, but economics has a piece there too, you know, causing, as we see, enormous trauma. I mean, when you have a nation, a rich nation where one quarter of children uh, go to you know, live in poverty, many of them going to bed hungry every night, that's not a normal we want to go back to. We must create 
a new partnerism normal. So I would just like to hear um, this example of, um, and this is because I live in the South. So uh, the, uh, the, sometimes the ability to speak to and communicate with um, people uh, who have different points of view about whatever, I mean, it really doesn't even matter anymore which side of the, your fence you, you're on. You, it seems like you can be just as rigid um, about your views. Uh, but I, I had heard you talk about this test for the this fascism test that involves a dog and a cat, and you show <laughs> someone the dog, and that the dog turns into a cat, but by the end they they swear there's no cat there, it's just the dog, and they don't see a cat. And you were talking about this is an example of uh, you know a brain that doesn't handle change very well, and you can be patient with this person over time. And they might be able to see the cat <laughs> eventually, but uh, that kind of test, um, I, I think, is very interesting. Uh, do you know that it's like a, there's a rigidity test? And if you're listening, I will put a link to there is a, a self-test you can do online about how rigid are you. Um, that would be fun to take, uh, see for yourself. And I want to say that. Um, we acquire this rigidity through our life experiences. And uh, it, one of the studies in Nurturing Our Humanity is a study that showed that people who are very, you know, who, who are very domination-oriented, punitive policies, that's what we need, you know, I mean, they are, uh, there's a part of their brain which doesn't function as well to adapt to change. Uh, I mean, I won't go into the details of the experiment, but so small wonder that we have so many people in denial about climate change when it's all around us, you know. I mean, I just heard on the radio that an ice shelf in Norway just split into half due to climate change so i mean the evidence is there but it's very interesting because as i detail in nurturing our humanity what happens uh and and really neuroscientists have have explained this uh domination systems as i said are very stressful they're they're really trauma factories and so what children learn is to suppress their feelings, especially their feelings against those, their parents or other caregivers who are causing them pain because they're completely dependent on them, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, to instead uh, deflect these feelings in in-group versus out-group thinking, which is the characteristic of domination system, you, there are only two alternatives. You either dominate or you're dominated, right? There is no partnership alternative. And so what we have to understand is that uh, to some extent, this damage can be reversed, but that people come by it honestly. And as you are working for, uh, we really need to change what we consider, quote, good parenting. 
I mean, finally, the American Psychological Association came out with a statement, what was it, two years ago, uh, saying that not only is spanking not effective, you know, uh, spanked children become, quote, bad children, right? Uh, but that it is harmful emotionally, and of course it can be harmful physically too. And yet the surveys show that worldwide, uh, because that's how domination systems maintain themselves so much, uh, so many people believe that spanking is good pedagogy, right? That otherwise, you know, you're spoiling your children. Uh, whereas in fact, the opposite is true. So the work that you're doing is fundamental, but it can't only be family by family. It has to be social and economic policy. And this is really where we come back to these more partnership-oriented nations, which are not socialist. I mean, Finland, Norway, Sweden have very healthy market economies. Uh, they're caring societies. And what they did is they have more caring policies. Universal health care, that's not socialism. That's a caring policy, a caring for everyone. And with this pandemic, my gosh, I mean, investing in public health is the best investment we can make, isn't it? Um, but we can't only, we need, in the United States, we need generous paid parental leave, and we need it for both mothers and fathers. You know, the Swedes, for example, started with uh, offering paid parental leave, and uh, fathers who usually in this lopsided economic system where so-called the work that men do is, is more highly rewarded than the work that women do, uh, weren't taking it, so they changed it. <clears throat> so that in these families, if both don't take it, neither gets it. So this, this is something that we can learn, can't we? Yes. It is, and I know we're, we're running at the top of our hour now, so can you just tell us uh, about partnerism and what's coming up at the Center uh, for Partnerism Studies, uh, Partnership Studies, and let us know how can we become more uh, involved with and aware of what your work is uh, bringing now, which is tremendous, uh, just tremendous resources. Well, we're launching a partnerism for the 21st century campaign. And I want to invite all of our listeners to be part of it. You already are in many ways, but the thing that we need, first of all, is that different frame. And then we have to focus on four cornerstones, childhood, gender, economics, but not capitalism or socialism, but a caring economics of partnerism, and for new stories, new language. And if we have, if we really shift these four cornerstones from domination to partnership, then we have solid foundations. And we will not continue to see these regressions periodically, uh, because these regressions are more and more dangerous. 
and we have to really bring about foundational change. So tell us where to go to find these resources. Go to centerforpartnership.org. That's our website. And there's also going to be a partnerism website. Uh, all of that is being launched on August 20th. And there is a summit. And I invite everyone to enroll in it. And you can find the enrollment information again at centerforpartnership.org. Uh, we must have a really integrated partnerism movement because the people pushing us back have spent enormous resources, time and money in pushing the normative ideal for family back. And yes. we must really understand that we, what we learned in college which is to marginalize or ignore the majority of humanity as just women's issues or just children's issues is false. It's the wrong story. Uh, what happens to us, what children first experience and observe affects and really directly affects how our brains are constructed and with it, how we feel, how we think, how we act, how we vote, and what kinds of societies we construct. Yes, we just had a discussion uh, last month about the, which, the whole mentality of which comes first, the chicken or the egg, and we're laughing about, uh, there are a couple of articles on Ken, uh, Kindred now about conscious activism, and that the you know, the chicken is in the egg and the egg is in the chicken and the chicken is in the egg and the egg is in the chicken. And therefore, you know, the child is in the adult and the adult is in the child and the culture, the culture is in, we have the seeds for this new culture within us. And this is the hopeful piece that we try to help um, our kindred followers understand. It's a, it is the shift towards the holistic worldview, this integrated worldview, that is, you know, says we can do this. Sure, we can. We can. We can do this. Now we're going to need your help, Ian. <laughs> so right. I, I, this big picture framework, uh, the meta view that you provide, I think, is really what we've needed to help a lot of the activists working on their pieces in their, you know, isolation without much funding uh, to come under and to. I think it provides tremendous clarity on what we're doing and why. So thank you so much again for your work. Well, thank you, and I want to really add one thing uh, that Nurturing Our Humanity documents from findings from neuroscience, from both the physical and the social sciences, that actually in the course of evolution, our brains were wired more for consciousness, for caring, for creativity, than for, and these are the capacities that really are central their expression uh, in, in partnership systems than for uh, insensitivity, cruelty, and violence, but that we must change our cultures, starting with our family, childhood, and gender relations. That we're talking about interactions. This is what system science shows that you can't just explain things in terms of one-way 
linear causes and effects. So it's an exciting time. It is. And we can make a difference, every one of us. It is. I, I am uh, very excited and, and thank you so much again. And I will just tell anyone listening, uh, you can find this transcript at kindredmedia.org along with lots of transcripts and videos. Uh, I have some other really fun videos of uh, Rian's uh, life, uh, early life that you did, the chalice or the blade. Um, you can see those. Uh, we'll put them all together for you so you have a nice uh, introduction to uh, her work um, and some resources of where to go next. So thank you so much again. I deeply appreciate all that you've done. Thank you, Lisa. Keep on doing the wonderful work that you're doing and help people uh, persevere. That's what we have to do. Just hang in there and use this COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to build a better partnerist normal. Yes, let's do that. Okay, thank you so much. <laughs>